Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Grace. And so true. I wonder when we were singing that, were you smiling when we were singing? I, I'm happy. <laughs> you know, sometimes we can get theoretical about that and sing. I, I know I'm happy. I know I'm free. But if that doesn't make you smile, I don't know what would, what should. Right. Yeah. To know the Lord. And that's what we've been looking at this morning. A real living, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, not just He's not just a thing. He's not just an institution. He's not just a religion. He's a person. And he's personal in his relationship with us. We looked this morning at uh, Ezekiel, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 32 and 33. And we saw there that this relationship has a responsibility, our side of it, and it has God's side of it. There, we have a responsibility in this relationship as we do in any relationship, right? In the husband-wife relationship, there's a responsibility on one side and there's a responsibility on the other. The Lord said himself on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 6, right? That those blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so we ask ourselves, are we people that are hungering? I know we want his righteousness. We want to know that we are saved and that we are righteous before God. But do we hunger and thirst after practical righteousness? And he has his side of it. They shall be filled. The Lord will enable that that satisfaction, that contentment to occur in our lives. So we saw with the people of Israel, there was failure and then intercession and repentance, followed by the fellowship and leading to the adoration of the Lord. Lord, show me thy glory. Wanting to see him. Now, for us, we see him in his word. But when you come to the word in the mornings, when you have your time with the Lord, do you ask the Lord in prayer? Do I ask the Lord, Lord, show me your glory? Because he can do that. The word is alive. He wants to do that, but he won't do it unless we want it. See, so there has to be that desire. And we saw that with Asaph as we worked through Psalm 73 a little bit, where he said, there's nothing on earth. There's nothing in heaven I desire besides thee. There's nothing on earth I desire besides thee. To come to that place. And that's one of the things in a time of revival we see when the Lord is working in the hearts of His people that He instills that desire for wanting to be closer to Him. For wanting to please Him more and realizing that really there's nothing. And beloved, it took me a long time to see it, too. There were idols, what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the poor idols of the earth. And, and there are different things that fill that spot in each one of our hearts. But when you come to the place of finally realizing sometimes not until you're in your 70s, right? But you, it's, it's great, at least if you can do it and come to the place of realizing there's nothing on earth I desire besides you, Lord. You are everything. Everything else is secondary. My spouse, my children, my education, my career. That's what he said in Matthew 10, didn't he? He said, unless you put me in that place, you're not worthy of me. He deserves that place. But it takes us a while to see it. And he gives us time to see it. And then, of course, we look then at Paul in Philippians 3. And now I'd like to come to a few passages where revival occurred in other time frames in the Old Testament. And firstly, in Second Chronicles chapter 29. 
Second Chronicles chapter 29 opens with King Hezekiah taking the throne. He's still a young man when he enters the throne. And he comes right after one of the worst kings of the southern kingdom. His father, Ahaz, a very wicked king. He offered one of his children in the fire to Molech. So, I mean, that was very close to Hezekiah, his own brother. And you wonder all through Hezekiah's life what that did to him. If, if Hezekiah was alive, then we don't know if, they, if his brother preceded him or came after him. But imagine his own brother being offered right there in the fire to Molech. And so King Hezekiah, we read in verse 1 of Second Chronicles 29, when he was 25 years old. Imagine that. We sometimes think you have to be 55 before you can really be effective for the Lord. Well, here's a 25-year-old that chose to use his life for God. And I pray that'll be true this week, too. If there's some that need to do that and make that decision. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And what was the first thing then that the Lord puts on his heart in verse three in the first year of his reign in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. You see, King Ahaz had ignored, his father had ignored the house of the Lord, the temple. It was in shambles, really. He had defiled it with all kinds of idols and things that were in there. The doors were even in disrepair. He didn't care. King Ahaz didn't. And the first thing Hezekiah does is prepare his heart for the Lord. And that including getting the temple ready for the place of fellowship with God. Don't forget, the temples was where they communed with God in the Old Testament dispensation. And we can apply this to ourselves because the temple in the New Testament, we recognize that the temple, not only are we, when we collectively gather as an assembly, are we the temple of the Lord, but individually, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, aren't they? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, make that abundantly clear. And that's why what we do to our bodies should be important to us because the Holy Spirit inhabits that temple. And you don't defile the temple of God. Paul says it, right, in 1 Corinthians 3. You don't defile the temple of God and expect nothing from God. And God's not going to let you do that, see, whether you do it collectively or individually. And so he brought in the priests, verse 4, and the Levites, gathered them in the east square and said, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, something apparently they hadn't done for a while, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from this holy place. And we, too, have rubbish in our lives that need to be expelled, Right? As we grow and as we serve the Lord, and I don't care if you've known the Lord for 20 years or whether you've known him for two years, there, there will be the Holy Spirit. If you spend time in the word of God, he will show us areas of rubbish in our lives that need to be expelled. And of course, Romans 8:13 tells us we can only do that by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, we put to death the things of the flesh and of the body, right? But here he has... Right away, the first thing he does, and, and that's sometimes we see in revival historically in the history of the church, that the Lord puts on the heart of his people to want to expel those things in their lives. And some of the things that happen, maybe this week, but some of the things that happen in a week of 
prayer and revival and reestablishment of relationship with the Lord can be very dramatic. People can get very emotional because we want the Spirit to be free to work in the hearts of everyone, right? We want to, to put aside the mask and put aside the religiosity and put aside the Christianese and be real with God. And that's one of the things I'm praying that happens this week. Not only in my life, but in the lives of everyone who willingly wants to participate because it has to be from a willing heart. Only those will come that want to come. We don't force anybody. The Lord didn't. This was a willing heart. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him and have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on Him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense of burnt offerings in the holy place. See, all that the Lord stipulated through David and Solomon we assume sometimes that they, well, they continuously did that. Well, they didn't. In fact, for most of their history, they did not do it. We read in Hezekiah's day and later in Josiah's day that some of the practices they hadn't celebrated the Passover since the days of Joshua, it says, like the way they were celebrating it then. That's amazing. That's a whole millennium. And so Hezekiah for the, therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. In other words, as a testimony for God, Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was, where God was, if you please, the Shekinah glory was in a place of disrepair and dishonor to God and for the nations all around that the temple was supposed to be drawing the nations to God, they looked at and they saw weakness. They saw disrepair. They saw a testimony in ruin. And do you think that drew the people of the nations to God? Was Israel a light of the world in that condition? Or we? When we live a life of dishonor to God, when we live in discouragement and despair. Now, I realize sometimes there are chemical reasons for that. There are some things that work in us that cause us. But in general, the Lord wants us in a place of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Not discouragement, not, not weakness, not doubt, not fear. Perfect love casteth out fear, right? When we're walking with the Lord. And so this is something in a week like this that we can do. We can look to the Lord to revive our hearts and cause us to again be stirred for his name, his testimony. And represented through us, right? So Hezekiah then gives these commandments to purge the temple. And, and in verse 19, I'm just skipping through for the sake of time. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign, that's his father, had cast aside in his transgression. We have prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. So Hezekiah gets first, he begins by getting the temple cleaned up, getting all the debris and the rubbish out so they can, the priests and the Levites can serve there. That's where it begins, you see. That's where fellowship being restored with God begins. But it doesn't end there. Immediately then, he wants to celebrate the Passover. And so he gets the preparation and the, and the rededication of the temple. It's interesting, in verse 27, 
that Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began. It's interesting. I'm sure the rabbis have speculated a lot on what that song of the Lord is. We don't know for sure. It may have been Psalm 69. It may have been Psalm 118. I'd like to think. But the Lord would identify it for us if he wanted us to know. But they knew the song of the Lord began. And the people were stirred. And all the assembly worshipped. Verse 28. The singers sang. The trumpeters sounded. And all this and continued until the burnt offering was finished. And they hadn't done this for years. Can you imagine the impact it had not only on the people of God, but on the surrounding nations who knew it and heard of it? The reputation that it made, see, that these people are recommitting themselves to the Lord. They are thankful for the privilege that God has set them aside for him. And they want to serve him with everything they have, see. In verse 36, then, then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. See, this was a sudden thing. And that's the way it works in revival. Revival is not something that's instituted by man and and manufactured by man. It's always from God. Now, God will put on the hearts of people to pray for it and to seek for the people to be restored to a vital relationship to him. But the Lord will work and it's amazing how he works. And sometimes miraculous things take place. I believe in miracles. Do you? I believe that God is still able to do that. And if he's not doing it, why isn't he? Why, why would we expect just mediocrity from God? See, I don't expect that from him. And we shouldn't expect that from him. God's the same. And he wants to show his power. He wants to show his authority to a lost world. And the lost world right now thinks that we are out of our minds, a lot of them. That we are cuckoo. That we are just religious people that gather on Sunday and go through emotion. But we're not any different from them. And sadly, in many cases, we're not any different from them. We have our Lord... We have our fire insurance certificate, and that's it. (laughs) But otherwise, we don't have a living, abiding relationship. We don't pray to them every day. We don't read the Word every day. They don't either. They say, well, that's good. We're tracking. They do drugs. We do drugs. They party. We party. They watch the same movies that we do. And there's no difference, see? So why would a lost person want to know your God or my God if we were to living like that? Why would they? They don't see any difference. They might as well stay like they are. In fact, they might be scared that our God might do something to them. But if we're living a vital relationship with God, if we're showing the power of God in our lives, if we show the joy of the Lord, even in difficult circumstances, that's what they're watching. They're watching what we're like when we go through trials. See, if we condemn him and curse him when we go through trials, we're just like them. That's what they do. And we don't show that we have any vital relationship with God at all, see. But we know better. We know something that the world doesn't know. We know that God is working how many things together for good? Only some of the things? Only the good things? All things. The bad things, too. He's working together for good. To them that love Him. To them that are called according to His purpose. In verse 29, you never leave 28 out without 29. What's His purpose? 
29 tells us to conform us to the image of his son. And he uses largely trials and difficulties to do that. So you want to know why trials are in your life? Not to make you unhappy, not to make you and I discouraged, to make us like his son. You say, well, what a genius of a mind God is. To think of taking something like trials and heartaches and disappointments and difficulties and using them for good to make me more like Jesus. To make me more like the kind of person Jesus wants me to be and that other people want and need to see. You with me? Well, it continues for the next few chapters here in Second Chronicles. But it's interesting. They, had, they returned it says in verse, verse 6, the children of Israel return to the Lord of God, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. They had just been through a time when the, the northern kingdom had been taken away. The southern kingdom had almost been annihilated, except for the city of Jerusalem. And he says to the remnant, return. That's the same thing Zechariah. The great book of Zechariah, chapter 1, starts out, Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. He remembers His covenants. Maybe covenant theology doesn't remember the covenants with Israel, but God remembers His covenants. And Zechariah's name says, God remembers. And he begins, he says, right there in chapter 1, to the remnant, to believers, return to me and I'll return to you. See, there's the two signs. Return to me. Return to a close, intimate relationship with me. Return to the love you had for me the day you were saved. Do you remember that day? you remember how excited you and I were to have a relationship with the living God? Return to that if we haven't already. And that's one of the things that happens in, in a time of revival. And then one other thing in verse 12 of chapter 30. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders as the word of the Lord. And of many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread. He sends a letter to people even in the northern kingdom. He doesn't just, it's not just colloquial. He wasn't just concerned about the people in the southern kingdom. He sent from Dan to Beersheba. Anyone, anyone who wants to come and celebrate the Passover with us, come. Let's come back to the Lord. Let's celebrate Him again. So Hezekiah is a great example how one man, a 25-year-old, and there are examples of sisters too, 25-year-old women, that have impacted the world for God. And oftentimes that occurs in revival. And then, over in a few chapters of chapter 34, in this same book, Second Chronicles chapter 34, well, after Hezekiah, we have his son. His father was the worst king, maybe Ahaz. His son was the second worst king, or maybe vice versa, Manasseh, depending on how you look at it. So the, the, the testimony went into a period of decline again. And God raised up one person, Josiah, to bring his people back to him. We read in verse 1, Second Chronicles chapter 34. Beloved, these things have been written for our learning. You understand that. When we were going through the book of Joshua, that's what we were trying to say. That there are principles here that continue. 
when Jamel, when you and Michael and you all did Bucket Week, you, you studied narrative literature, right? And narrative literature is cumulative. It builds on it from all the way from Joshua to the end of the historical books to the book of Esther. All of that is cumulative instruction for how we live for God. And there are great principles here. And here's another one. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, the Holy Spirit emphasizes that, while he was still young. <laughs> well, the eighth year of his reign, and if he was eight years old, that makes him how old? Sixteen. Thank you. Sixteen years old. And look at there was there's a certain steps that we see in the time of Hezekiah and we see it repeated here in verse three. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to do what? To seek the God of his father, David. He began to seek the God of his father, David, and that led to in the 12th year, he began to purge. Same thing we saw with Hezekiah, right? He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded and broke down the altars of the Baals. Verse four, he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. In verse five, he broken down verse seven, broke down the altars and wooden images and so forth. You see, he cleared out the rubbish. He cleared out of his life and the life of his people. He made a decision, didn't he? To clear out of his life and the life of his people those things that he knew were contaminating his walk in relationship with God. You see, God wants us to be real. It's easy to be theoretical and to talk about these things and even talk about them in prayer. But God's looking at the action, isn't he? He wants us to pray, but he also wants us to act on it, to clear out those things in our lives that we know are defiling, ungodly, the rubbish. And we all bring baggage. We call it baggage. It's kind of a counseling word that's used. Baggage from our old life we bring into the Christian life, right? Things, habits, and ideas, and false thinking, and worldliness that we had in our old life. And, and we didn't even know how many things it encroached into into our soul at the time we were saved. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't wait for us to cleanse all those things out before we're saved. And in fact, we find out from the Word of God, we can't cleanse them. We have no power to cleanse, to do this purging. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we're able to do that, see. But He's given us His Spirit. <laughs> Lavishly. His brother said this morning, He's given us His Spirit. He's given us the Lord Jesus. Peter says, We have everything we need for life and godliness in Him. Everything we need. So if we're not a living, shining, vital testimony for Christ in this world, whose fault is it? It's not His. He's given us everything we need. And that's one of the things in a time of revival and prayer for revival, we, we honestly confess before the Lord. Yes, Lord. Sometimes that's done publicly. Sometimes that's done privately. But being honest with the Lord, taking off that religious mask, I almost wore a mask this morning so I could take it off and be dramatic and show you. But, but we, we all wear masks like that, see? 
We have our, you know, our, our sober Sunday morning mask and we come in and, you know, we've got a somber look and serious and all of that. But that's not how you look when you go to the ball game. Right? You're not wearing that mask at the ball game. Why aren't you wearing the same thing to the ball game that you wear in the gathering of the saints, right? If you're real, if you're consistent, you would, wouldn't you? And so that's some of the things the Lord brings to our attention in our heart in a time like this. And so we thank the Lord for it. And one of the amazing things that happened in this particular case, Josiah, while they're cleansing the temple, and I'll let you read that record for yourself. It's exciting, beginning in verse 8 and the 18th year and so forth. But suddenly they discover the book of the law. Verse 15, Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So he carried the book to the king. What had happened to the Word of God? The Word of God was in shambles. It was ignored. They, they had lost it, if you will. The people of God had lost the Bible. Do Christians ever do that? Well, we may not lose it, but if it's sitting on the shelf and collecting about a quarter inch of dust, that's not much different, is it? Right? If we're honest. And so they discover the Word of God. And what happens? They bring it in to the king. Look at verse 18. Shaphan the scribe told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He's still not sure really what it is. He's given me a book. He says, and Shaphan read it before the king. It happened when the king heard the words of the law. He tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and the rest of them, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left concerning the words of this book that is found. What was he reading? Again, we're not told. Very likely Deuteronomy 29, the very curses that they had been suffering. And he reads this and and the blessings and cursings of the law. They read this and and he's touched in his heart. It's interesting. That name, Helkiah, the priest, maybe some of you recognize that. That's the father of Jeremiah, who was also in the priestly line, Jeremiah, the prophet. And Jeremiah was alive. He was a contemporary of Josiah. And we read in Jeremiah chapter 15, around verse 2 or... No, it's around verse 14, I think it is. He says that thy word was found and I did eat it. That's what he's talking about this event. He was serving in the temple with his father. Thy word was found and I did eat it. I did consume it. I couldn't get enough of it. And for me, it was the joy and rejoicing of my soul. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Is that how you and I come to the Word of God? Is the Word of God the joy and rejoicing of your soul tonight? Or is it just a religious book? Right? To be real about it. Does the Word of God impact you and me like Jeremiah is talking about? He was excited. He was delighted. He was drawn because the Word of God is the mind of God. And the mind of God is the character of God. In other words, to love His Word rightfully at least, instead of just worshiping it as a book, but seeing that it's the character of God draws us to God in amazing ways. See, Now it's interesting. It's important, I think, in the context of realizing that there are some things that we need to purge and some things that we need to 
set aside old baggage, that kind of a thing from our old life. That in Luke chapter 11, our Lord gives a warning about the what's called the worthlessness of self-reformation. You remember that this is the what's often called the parable of the haunted house. Where the man, the particular man who had an unclean spirit, the unclean spirit, he's got a demon. He's not saved. And the unclean spirit goes out of the man. He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. Notice what the unclean spirit is saying. He's saying that man's soul and body is his house. So someone who's demon possessed, they think they own the demon, but the demon knows better. He owns them. See, that's that's the whole error of idolatry and witchcraft that the New Testament talks about and sorcery. Sorcery is coming back, in, in, especially among the young people in amazing ways. See, we had we got exposed to it in the hippie era, some in the 70s and 80s, but it's coming back with a vengeance. And I think it's going to continue and grow all the way to the. Rapture of the church. This unclean spirit, see, this man, he went through some stages of self-reformation. That is, he got rid of the things in his life that were defiling, but he didn't put anything in in their place. He didn't receive Christ and the Holy Spirit in the place. So that left a vacuum. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order because this man had cleaned up his life. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And then listen to how our Lord says it at the end. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now he doesn't just have one demon, he's got seven of them. And if it was hard enough to get rid of one, it's harder to get rid of seven of them. I can imagine what it was for the man Legion who had a couple of hundred of them in him, see. He was able to break steel. Our young people are drawn to these comic book heroes now. They're making these movies of them. They're able to break steel. They're able to do these supernatural things. They're just like Legion. They're demon-possessed. That's what demon possession does, see. And we forget that. We don't realize that the very things that, that we think and idolize sometimes and think, oh, it's just cute. It's not cute. I was brought up with comic book. You were probably brought up to them. They were around and, and we were, you know, Thor and, and all of those deals and the bulk of the Incredible Hulk and all that. And, and they were like Legion. Demon possessed. In a secret way, the world system was duping us, see. It's interesting. J. Edwin Orr, who I think just died recently, was an evangelist. And he particularly was involved in some revivals that occurred in different parts of the world as he traveled. And he became kind of fascinated with the subject of revival. He wrote about it. He did studies in the history of it. He's written some of those books are interesting. But he tells of a story when he was in New Zealand that they were doing some evangelistic work, doing some preaching meetings. And near the end of the time he was with them, four Aborigines young girls came up and sang a song, an Aborigines song, a farewell song. And that led him, he went to the airport then, and that led him then 
to put that same tune, Amorari is the name of the tune, into a hymn that he that is titled Cleanse Me. It's 545 in your hymnal. And it, it's a great prayer for revival. He's building it off of Psalm 139, 23 and 24. You know how Psalm 139, the writer of the psalm says, Lord, I can't escape from you. If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depth of the earth, if I go to the north, south, east, I can't. Why would you want to, right? And then he says, search me. Search me. The seven eyes of the Lord, I think, that Zechariah talks about. The four directions of the compass, north, south, east, west, that's four. The heavens are the fifth. The depths of the earth are the sixth. What's the seventh one? Inside the heart. And that's where he ends Psalm 139. Search me. And verse 2 says, I praise thee, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word and make me pure within. Fill me with fire where once I burned with shame. See, where once I burned with shame and guilt, fill me with fire for you and boldness instead. See, that's what happens at revival. Grant my desire to magnify thy name. See, verse three, Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, self and pride. And I now surrender, Lord. In me, abide. Cleanse me, see. Paul in 2 Corinthians, and I'll close with that. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, quoting the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? That's what Hezekiah had on his heart. That's what Josiah had on his heart. That's what the people of Israel in the time of Exodus 33, they had a desire to come apart and be separate unto him. Unto him who loved us and washed us, right? Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. That's a living, abiding, personal, familial relationship, isn't it? So when we separate ourselves from sin and uncleanness and worldliness, it's not just leaving a void and a vacuum like the man in Luke chapter 11. It's filling it, that vacuum, filling that with the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the person of Jesus Christ. And recognizing that the Father, we're Trinitarians, right? We believe in the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the Father mentioned here too. And you shall be my sons and daughters. And Paul will then go on in chapter 7 to give one of the clearest definitions of repentance in the New Testament. We don't have to be ambiguous about it. What is repentance? You know, it's some big word that Billy Graham uses in his crusades. Oh, it's defined right here. And there's an earnestness he talks about. There's a zeal. I think the particular incident he's speaking about is the man that they had to deal with and excommunicate in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And here he's restored. And he showed that restoration. He showed that repentance by certain things. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did. 
Now I rejoice that you were made sorry that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. See, there's worldly sorrow. Someone in worldly sorrow says, I got caught. I got caught. I wasn't clever enough. See, That's worldly sorrow. That's not repentance. You're just saying you were sad you got caught. Repentance says in brokenness, Lord, I sinned against you. Like David says in Psalm 51, and you only I sin, but I sinned against others and you seek to make restitution and you seek to reconcile. Oh, pride keeps so many of us from reconciliation. It's so easy to do if we would judge our pride. See, He says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And then he defines it. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all these things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. That's verse 11, 2 Corinthians 7. And I pray for all of us. Beloved, avail yourselves of the time that God has given this week. Not that this week is any different than any other week. But this week, the elders, the Lord has put on the heart of the elders a particular opportunity for like-minded believers who love the Lord, who recognize He's central in the church, to gather together and agree together in prayer about desiring to magnify His name in our midst. Is that not a good thing? And there are certain parts that we need to do in the matter of cleansing and purging and separation from old things and separation to the good things of God and the Lord Jesus and the ministry of His Spirit and the Word of God. And God will, He promises, to bless that. To enable that, if we will avail ourselves of the opportunity. So as I close in prayer, I've asked Bob and Grace to come up and we'll close in that hymn 545. And we can, I trust, sing it prayerfully because it's a prayer too. As well as a desire to exalt the Lord. So Father, we thank you, dear Lord. For the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ, your son. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's not anything we can really understand or get our minds around, Lord. But we are thankful, Lord, that you did it. And we pray now that as we prepare our hearts for an opportunity of growth, Fruitfulness, cleansing, restoration, restitution, reconciliation, whatever things that need to be done to humble ourselves before you and make us better sons and daughters, representatives of you. We pray you'll be free to do that amongst us in each one of us for your glory. As we give you thanks in the Lord Jesus name. Amen.